Hi, and welcome to the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this installment Because of Sex. That's because we just received a huge win from the full Second Circuit in a major Title VII case where the court ruled that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination under existing federal law. We'll begin by chatting about this huge case that we've been patiently waiting for with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Then I'll speak with Art about a discriminatory B&B in Hawaii and an anti-gay cake maker from California. Lastly, we'll be chatting about a really important New York parenting case with our own legal director, Brett Figlewski. And of course, Art will then be surprising me with his choice for the Of Note segment. So let's dig in. This month, in a historic ruling, the full Second Circuit, sitting in New York, overruled two of its prior precedents by holding that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination, which is already prohibited under Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act. The LGBT Bar Association of New York filed a friend of the court brief in this landmark case, and of course, many other LGBT civil rights organizations have, over the course of many years, maintained that federal law, if properly understood, protects LGBT people from employment discrimination. The title of this installment is Because of Sex, because the court found that Title VII's ban on discrimination because of sex encompasses sexual orientation. Art, with the Zarda case and the huge win in the Seventh Circuit in Hively, it appears that the momentum is headed towards justice under the law for LGBT employees. Well, it certainly looks like we've got a trend going, and uh, we should add that uh, Lambda Legal has filed an appeal in a case in the Eighth Circuit Mm -hmm. presenting this same issue under Title VII, and that will be uh, coming up soon. So we're building one circuit at a time, and... uh, It doesn't get to the Supreme Court unless someone files a petition for cert. They don't just reach out. But to get back to the case itself and what's going on here... Yeah, tell us about uh, the facts. Okay. So uh, this involves Donald Zarda, uh, who was a skydiving instructor. He's an openly gay man. Hmm. But in the summer of 2010, he was fired after a female customer's boyfriend complained that Zarda had come out to his girlfriend while preparing for a tandem skydive. That's where the instructor and the uh, customer are tightly strapped together for the dive. And uh, Zarda had said that he would put people at ease somewhat uh, if it was a woman and she was a little concerned about a man being strapped around her. He Uh said, no, I'm gay, don't worry. I have no sexual interest in you. Uh, Hmm. I even have a a husband to prove it. Uh, So so she, she told her boyfriend, evidently she was a little grossed out by this. She told her boyfriend, her boyfriend claimed to the boss and the boss fired Zarda. Hmm. Uh, so Zarda filed a charge with the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, mm-hmm. under Title VII, claiming that he was uh, discharged because of his sexual orientation. But he specifically said he was fired because, quote, he honestly referred to his sexual orientation and did not conform to the straight male macho stereotype. <laughs> At that point in, in 2010... When he did this, the EEOC had not yet issued its landmark decision in the Macy case, oh, rather the Baldwin case, 
holding that sexual orientation uh, was an actionable claim under Title VII. So at that point, all they could do was give him a right to sue letter. Mm -hmm. They couldn't determine that there had been a violation. So they gave him a right to sue letter, and he filed suit in the U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of New York. He also had a supplementary claim under the New York State Human Rights Law, which expressly forbids sexual orientation, discrimination, and employment. Uh, So the employer moves to dismiss the whole case, and the judge, Joseph Bianco, in the U.S. District Court, dismissed the Title VII claim on the ground that under Second Circuit precedent at the time, uh, uh, Circuit precedent bound him to dismiss that claim. Shortly after this, the uh, EEOC issued its Baldwin decision holding that sexual orientation claims could be brought under Title VII. Uh, so Zarda files a motion to reopen the, sum- the uh, dismissal, mm-hmm. uh, but the judge refuses to go along, says I'm bound by Second Circuit, not by the EEOC. So the case goes up to a three-judge panel of the Second Circuit on the Title VII claim only, mm-hmm. and uh, the three-judge panel said we are bound by these prior Second Circuit decisions. So can you explain to folks just really quickly why a three-judge panel feels bound by precedent and has to refer a case to a full Second Circuit in order well, for them to be able to well, reconsider? Well, this is, this is the way precedent is set up in the, in the federal courts of appeals. Three-judge panels, uh, if there is no prior circuit precedent on a question, it's a question of first impression, they can go whichever way they want in mm-hmm. figuring out how to construe the statute, how to apply it. But once a panel of the circuit has made such a decision, all subsequent three-judge panels, regardless of which judges are on them, will follow that as a binding precedent. And the only way it can be changed is either going on bank, which means the entire circuit sits. That's interesting. And it's also why these cases, Hively case, this case, are such massive victories, because we are dealing with the full court, not just a panel, overturning some bad precedent. So let's turn back to Zarda. What did we get? And what we got it was very interesting. We didn't get any one opinion that represents the views of a majority, although the court itself designated Judge Katzman's opinion the majority opinion, although it was just signed by five judges out Mm. of 13. Okay. Uh, But five other judges each wrote a concurring opinion, which means they agree with the result Mm -hmm. that Title VII covers sexual orientation claims, but they don't agree with everything Judge Katzman wrote about why. So they different theories coming up. The theory that seems to have had the most support was the associational theory. And the associational theory uh, draws an analogy from cases involving interracial marriages. Uh, It says that if an employee is discharged because they're dating or are are marrying someone of a different race, the courts have said that's race discrimination because the employer's decision to discharge them took into account their race and the race of their partner. Why not apply the same logic in sexual orientation cases and say that, uh, you know, if the employee is female and the object of her affections is female, if the employee had been male, the employer would have no objection to a male employee uh, having been attracted to a female employee. And so obviously the employer is taking their sex into account in making this decision. And Title VII says you can't take sex into account. And on that theory, the associational theory, all five judges who signed Judge Katzman's opinion, plus at least two others, making up a majority uh, of the seven out of the 13. Uh, So we have a majority for the associational theory. Uh, The other theories, we have uh, the but-for 
or comparator theory, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that uh, but for the person's sex, this wouldn't have been an issue. Okay, explain that. Uh, that one is almost impossible to explain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, it's it's basically saying that sex and sexuality and sexual orientation, they're all sort of aspects of the same thing, really, and that it's impossible to talk about sexual orientation without talking about sex. It's about the sex of the people that you're attracted to, and uh, it affects how you go through your life and how you think about yourself and how you define yourself and all these sorts of things. And actually, the Seventh Circuit case, uh, the uh, opinion for the court said it would take uh, extraordinary... Uh, efforts to somehow extricate sex from sexual orientation. It's just, it's a line that is fuzzy and and it's hard to draw and we shouldn't have to draw it. Uh, And then, uh, oh, the the stereotype theory, of course. Uh, And the idea is that it's almost impossible to conceive of discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation without some stereotypical thinking being involved Mm -hmm. in the case that... uh, the employer has a view that this is how men are supposed to act, this is how men are supposed to behave. Uh, And so that theory also has a fair amount of support uh, from uh, all five members uh, who signed on and at least one of the uh, concurring judges. So we had, in the end, 10 judges agreeing that uh, Title VII covers sexual orientation claims. And so what we have here is a situation now where we have outraged conservatives on one side and uh, worth pointing out, the Justice Department did uh, file an amicus brief and argue against allowing uh, sexual orientation claims. But the EEOC... <laughs> so you've got one agency saying... Yeah, right. And this the EEOC, is sec- on the other hand, they even... They appeared. Right. They filed the brief. They argued. <laughs> so agencies are at war with each other. When can we expect the Supreme Court to take a case? We've got a circuit split now. We've got two agencies fighting. When can yeah. we expect this to be resolved? Well, if a cert petition is filed in Zarda, I think they'll take it. Oh, do you? I think so. They'll take this it. This is a pronouncement. We're making news. I think I think they'll take it. <laughs> okay. uh, the point is that the only cert petition they've had on this question recently is from the Evans case in the 11th Circuit from Lambda, and that's the case with the employer one. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you, you know, you've got to get four justices to want the case to come up. And the four conservative justices, or more conservative justices, were not interested in this issue coming up mm-hmm. from a case where the employer won. Uh, and, you know, they had the Hively case sitting out there, but no one had filed a cert petition in that case because the employer said, we're willing to defend it on the merits. Uh, come back and have a trial because we don't think we were discriminating. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, I think if someone steps up and funds a cert petition on behalf of Altitude Express, I think it's likely it'll go up. And if, it, if not this case, uh, Lambda has an appeal getting started in the Eighth Circuit. I'm sure there will be appeals in other circuits. It's just a matter of time. Uh, and the big issue with time, of course, is who will be on the court when it comes up. Uh, Senator Heller of Nevada has now started floating this new rumor about Justice Kennedy retiring yeah. this summer. I but, of course, he's running for re-election. Yes. I don't think it's based on anything. <laughs> it's wish- Nina it's Totenberg on- was like, okay, yes. take this with a grain of salt. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's based on wishful thinking by Republicans that this will fire up their base with the idea that there's going to be another Supreme Court. In vote. order to be able to function and have, like, a normal day, I have to pretend like all of these rumors right. about a Kennedy retirement are just rumors. 
yeah, let's let's <laughs> let's. But and the funny thing is, we don't know how we would vote on a case like this. Well, that's uh, true, but I do remember, know what a next uh, Trump appointee yeah. would vote the on. The thing this. to keep in mind with Kennedy is, with Kennedy, we won the big four cases. Yeah, with him writing the opinion, Romer, Lawrence, uh, Windsor, and, and Obergefell. Yeah. But we lost his vote in the Boy Scouts case. Yeah, which was a five to four heartbreaker, and that was a discrimination case. Uh, so it know, all comes knows? back to cake. That's why this case is so well, important. Well, the cake, the, the masterpiece case. Well, uh, in terms of reading tea leaves about who's going to vote what when the Title Seven issue comes up, but it's really a, a different issue, and we'll be discussing it briefly later in this podcast when we talk about this weird outlier judge in Kern County, California. Oh, right. Who thinks so that thank they you. can speak through their case. All right, case. You've, you've teed okay. up the next segment yes. perfectly. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a quick trip to Hawaii with a layover in California as art references to talk about a B&B and a discriminatory baker. Okay, so we're back. An appeals court in Hawaii affirmed a lower court ruling against a bed and breakfast that denied a room to a lesbian couple because of their sexual orientation. Aloha Bed and Breakfast, whose owner says same-sex relationships defile our land, is represented by the anti-LGBT group Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the groups that we mentioned might be willing to pick up the Zarda case. The issue here is whether religion gives a business a right to discriminate. Gee, that sounds familiar, Art. Yeah. Tell us about this case. Okay. Diane Cervelli and Taiko Buford, a lesbian couple, uh, were planning a vacation trip to Hawaii, and they wanted to rent a room and a bed and breakfast, and uh, presumably through some advertising online, uh, they uh, found Aloha Bed and Breakfast, and Diane calls up. Uh, gets Phyllis Young on the phone, who's the proprietor, uh, who basically has a large house with a lot of bedrooms, and she rents out rooms to uh, tourists. And uh, she wants to make a room reservation, and Young says, well, you know, how many people and who? And it's two women. Uh, so Young asked if Cervelli and the other woman were lesbians. And Cervelli answered yes. So Young said, quote, we're strong Christians. I'm very uncomfortable in accepting the reservation from you and hung up. So then Buford called and received the same treatment and uh, wrote Judge Nakamura for the court in this case. He said, apart from plaintiff's sexual orientation, there was no other reason for Young's refusal to accept plaintiff's request for a room. Mm -hmm. So the women filed complaints with the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission alleging a violation of the public accommodations law, which in Hawaii bans sexual orientation discrimination. Commission found reasonable cause and would have actually filed suit on their behalf, but they wanted to bring their own case. Okay. So the commission gave them a right to sue letter, and they went to court. Uh, and after they filed in the circuit court, the commission moved to intervene as a co-plaintiff. So they had the government on their side. Uh, now, the law's definition of a public accommodation includes, quote, a ho- an inn, hotel, motel, or other establishment that provides lodging to transient guests. Okay, there's a different statute that governs residential leases that exempts from the anti-discrimination requirements, quote, the rental of a room or up to four rooms in a housing accommodation by an owner or lessor if the owner or lessor resides in the housing accommodation. Hmm. So owner-occupied rental housing 
is exempt, if it has fewer than four or fewer rooms, is exempt under the anti-discrimination provisions. Uh, and so what Phyllis Young argued is I'm entitled to the exemption because I live in the house. Uh, and uh, furthermore, she says, this violates my right of privacy and my right of intimate association, that I should have to have lesbians in my house. Mm-hmm. And also, I have religious objections. So she, she wants to raise the First Amendment. Uh, she wants to raise uh, constitutional right of privacy and yeah. uh, right of association and also the statutory exemption. Right. Well, the court made short work of the statutory exemption. They said that clearly is about renting someone a room to live in, not a tourist to be there for a few days, you know, entering into a residential lease or something like that. If you're renting rooms in your house, like you're running a rooming house or something to people, that's what that's about. Uh, But here we're talking about these are transient people. And she admitted in her deposition that uh, she has over 100 guests a year. And so that also killed her privacy and association claims. I mean, you can't say right of privacy, but that you're opening up your house to 100 guests a year. They, they said, well, when you decided to be a commercial bed and breakfast, you sort of gave that one up. Also, the intimate association. You're intimately associated with, with every people. guest? My they God. Said, no, that's, that's, that can't be. I mean. So it all boils down to the religion question. And on the religion question, she ran into Employment Division versus Smith, which is the U.S. Supreme Court case that says there is no religious exemption from neutral, generally applicable laws. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is a neutral, generally applicable law. By neutral, they mean neutral with respect to religion. The law does not single out anyone based on religion. It just says you can't discriminate based on sexual orientation, regardless of what your religion is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then she sort of made the last-ditch argument. She said, well, the Hawaii Constitution has been construed from time to time to provide more protection for individual rights than the federal constitution. As many state constitutions So do. I want you to interpret the Hawaii religious freedom thing broader in my favor, and they refused to do it. Hmm. They refused to do it. Uh, they said, we're not, we're not going to do this. Uh, they said, we need not decide whether a higher level of scrutiny should be applied to a free exercise claim under the Hawaii Constitution of the U.S. because we conclude that the public accommodations law satisfies even strict scrutiny as applied to Aloha B&B's free exercise claim. So they said, Hawaii has a compelling interest in prohibiting discrimination in public accommodations, and this law is narrowly tailored to achieve Hawaii's interest. So even if you could raise a free exercise claim, this it's is not going to be compelling. good. It's going to be overcome by the compelling state interest. And, and that's very interesting. The compelling state interest is very important as, as we'll see next month when we discuss a RIFRA defense, uh, mm. Re- Religious Freedom Restoration Act defense, to a uh, Title VII claim. This is fascinating. Okay, so that was a really great decision. Let's contrast that with the bad this bad decision, a cake that leaves a foul taste in the mouth. Um, the first anti-gay baker case that we've really had from a state court where you have a judge ruling in favor of the discriminatory baker on the grounds that he's a cake artist yes, um, and can refuse to make cakes for um, same-sex couples. In What's other words, going on here? This, this, is, this is very troubling because this is the same route that the Justice Department and ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, are pursuing in the Masterpiece Cake Shack. Yeah. See, they realize that in order to win on a free exercise of religion claim, they'd have to get the Supreme Court 
to overrule or at least modify Employment Division versus Smith, yeah. which is an iconic case. I mean, the opinion was by Scalia, of all people. Uh, and so it's, it's clear that the conservative majority of the Supreme Court is unlikely to think that it's a good idea to give people license to just go out and violate any law they want if they can claim some sincere religious belief that yeah. would be violated by their having to comply. So they're coming with this alternative forced speech idea, compelled speech, the idea that if you require a baker to bake a cake for a wedding against his religious principles, or her religious principles in this case, the, uh, the baker's name is Kathy here, uh, Kathy's Creations Incorporated, doing business as Tastry's Bakery. So Kathy Miller is the defendant in this case. And the, court, the judge drew an interesting distinction. This is Judge David Lampy of the Kern County Superior Court. He says, if they wanted to come in and buy one of the cakes in the display case, fine. You can't discriminate against them. But if they want you to bake a cake, especially for them, they're asking for you to undertake an artistic expression that will be used to uh, signify some kind of celebration or approval of their marriage. And that's compelled speech. And he says it's, it's almost like the height of compelled speech to bake a cake for a wedding, which I think anyone who's gone to a wedding, do people ask who the baker is or what the baker thinks about no. same-sex marriage? I mean, the, the identity of the baker is sort of irrelevant. He's slicing that baker. cake argument very thin. Yes, <laughs> very thin. I, mean, I think he, he better watch out because that icing is slippery. Uh, so, but, so, and this is going to be appealed because uh, the plaintiff in this case is the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, not the individual uh, couple who wanted the cake, Eileen and Maria Rodriguez del Rio. Uh, so I can't see the state not appealing this, and I can't see a California Court of Appeal not reversing this. I mean, this, this would be absurd. Uh, so far, you know, fingers crossed, don't want to jinx the Masterpiece Cake Shop, but so far every one of these cases that has gone to an appellate level has been decided against the uh, defendant who wants to assert their rights, their religious rights. But for the first time here, we've got a case going all the way on the free expression. Uh, by all the way, I mean the Supreme Court granted cert, so they're likely they're going to decide on the merits. The same argument was made in the context of a wedding photographer in the New Mexico case from years ago, mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court denied cert in that one. Yeah. And the New Mexico Supreme Court said, yeah, 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 you know, you're, you're making an album, you're posing people, you're selecting photos, you're arranging it in an album and stuff. That is a sort of artistic expression. But we don't think it necessarily is compelling the speech that you approve of the wedding just because you're, I mean, you're hired to do this. Yeah. This isn't like an artist who's just creating out of his or her personal motivation to express themselves. This is work for hire. That's yeah. different. We, we're not going to think that's compelled speech, but we should flag for our listeners that there is a case pending on this issue in Kentucky. It's very interesting. The Kentucky Supreme Court is going to decide whether a company that makes custom T-shirts is privileged under the First Amendment not to comply with an anti-discrimination law. They refuse to make T-shirts for a gay pride celebration. I see. I think this is in Lexington, Kentucky. And there's a local law banning sexual orientation discrimination by businesses and they refused and... Shows the importance of those civil rights uh, ordinances city and, by but, city. But they've been upheld so far. Yeah. And the, the civil rights agency in, in the city ruled against them, but they won in court. 
they want a ruling from the Court of Appeals in Kentucky that it would violate their First Amendment free speech rights, and that's going to the Kentucky Supreme Court now. Yeah. So, you know, this is... And, and you look at the cases involving denial of goods or services in connection with weddings, all right? Uh, I think the photographers and the videographers and the cake bakers... Well, the videographers and the photographers probably have the strongest speech sure. argument. Then the cake makers. What about the florists? <laughs> you know, we've got we've got a petition still pending at the Supreme Court for sure. Marlene's flowers, which they're holding until they decide masterpiece. And then the T-shirt. And, the and t-shirt. so it does. You know, if Kennedy's trying to draw the line, this is where it just gets really difficult it's, to do. To say some it, people are are artists and others are. Folks for hire. And, and it's difficult for him when you're posing the religious uh, part of it as well, because you saw this in the Obergefell case. He sort of tiptoed around the religious thing. He said, of course, this doesn't mean that people can't believe what they want to believe, uh, have their sincere religious beliefs against same-sex marriage. They can teach their beliefs as being the correct approach. We're just saying that the state can't deny a marriage license. Mm. And uh, in the uh, dissenting opinions, I think Alito was the strongest on this, saying, just a minute, you're basically labeling everyone who disagrees with same-sex marriage as an official bigot, you know? And uh, this is this is bad, this is putting a label, et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting to see Kennedy in the oral argument for Masterpiece kind of call out the commission as, you know, using very strong, dismissive language about religion. Right. So... Um, maybe so. he listened to that Alito. Yeah, who knows? Who knows how he's going to come down on this? This is a big mystery. It's and, always Kennedy. And, and the other thing is, the other thing is, this could come at any day now because they have already now issued opinions in some other cases that were argued in the same session of the court yeah. in December. So. You know, we're within the zone of time. Sure. I think they're they're off. No opinions until the 19th. But, geez, by the time this podcast comes out, it could be coming down. That could be. And so our (laughs) April podcast could be quite explosive. We we might sound like we really miss the mark with folks who are listening to it in real time going, wow, they really got that wrong. Great. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'll be talking with our own legal director, Brett Figluski, about a big win for our clients, Joy Danielle and their daughter, Maya, in New York. Great, so we're back. It isn't only federal courts in New York making news this month. New York state courts have also been very busy. This month, in a historic ruling, the Appellate Division Second Department in New York found that the legal presumption that every child born during a marriage is the legitimate child of both spouses applied equally to same-sex spouses and their children. The mothers in this case were represented by the Curlin Group, and by us, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, or LEGAL. And I have the honor of sitting here and chatting again with our legal director, Brett Figluski. Hi, Brett. Hi, Eric. Welcome back. I'm so excited to talk about New York family law with you, particularly as it seems to be changing at a rapid pace. It seems also that you're behind a lot of it. 
Um, so tell us about that. Well, sure. Well, we're just so delighted with this victory, of course. It follows on the heels of the third department decision last month and the decision we talked about in the last podcast. So this is a bit of a sequel. And as you mentioned, this case doesn't, in fact, affirm the presumption of parentage for married LGBT spouses and also really talks a lot about concept of estoppel, which I think we may have mentioned last week. But Fairness, right? Yes. Well, it's really an equitable doctrine and says that you can't assert a right that goes against your prior statements or conduct. And it's proving to be a really, really powerful legal tool in these cases and one which we're using in a number of cases currently pending before the courts. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, so first of all, maybe you could summarize quickly what the presumption of parentage is, but in the context of who are our clients, what are the facts, what is this case about? Sure. So the marital presumption of legitimacy, as it's traditionally known, says that a child born during the marriage is presumed to be the legitimate child of the marriage. And increasingly, it's being understood to be a presumption of parentage generally. Um, As far as the facts of this case go, our clients... Danielle and Joy Barbour live in Orange County, and they reached out to us a couple of years ago now because they had a child together after having married in Connecticut in 2009, and a couple of years later wanted to have a child, found a donor on the internet, and had a beautiful baby girl. And about three and a half years later, um, the nightmare of all parents came to pass that the donor sought parental rights and so Danielle and Joy reached out to us and we took on the case in conjunction and collaboration with the Curlin Group and represented them in family court in Orange County and also on appeal in the second department. That's great. And so what was um, what was it like representing them? What happened in the context of the proceeding? Um, And how receptive did the judge seem to the arguments that you guys were making? Sure. Well, first, um, we were in family court, and one of the main issues was that Joy, um, the spouse of Danielle and the non-biological, non-gestational mother, had not been included on the petition at all. And so we first filed a motion to dismiss the donor's petitions based on that error in the pleadings. And we were successful. He refiled. There were a number of court appearances, and we lost our motion to dismiss and immediately filed an interlocutory appeal with the second department. Um, But this was a case which went on for over two years. Um, Mm. And fortunately, um, the attorney for the child supported our position. Um, One of the main arguments we made was that um, estoppel should apply, that um, the facts on the ground, which is sometimes my code phrase for estoppel, were such that there was no meaningful relationship with the child on the part of the donor at all. And so he should effectively be estopped from asserting any claim to parentage. And in fact, that's what the appellate division based its decision on. So while this both reaffirmed the presumption of parentage for LGBT spouses and, and cited 
Um, in, num in a number of instances, the third department decision from less than a month before, it really turned on estoppel and really delved into the facts of the case that this um, donor had not been involved um, in a meaningful way in the child's life. The child did not recognize him as a parent, dimly knew him perhaps as a family friend, and the attorney for the child um, corroborated what we were asserting. And I think one of the things that I found so moving in being able to talk with Danielle uh, and Joy about this case was, um, you know, before we came on board, kind of the, the judge that they were appearing before long ago, kind of ignoring... Um, you know, uh, Joy's participation at all. Oh, absolutely. As I said, she had not been named in the petition. Right. And at the initial hearing, and we were not on the case at that point, right. um, Joy was in the courtroom in the back, um, wasn't even acknowledged until the judge had a question about um, who carried the child's health insurance. Um, and so really she was viewed, um, you know, as the one merely providing health insurance to the child, but was in fact told that um, she needed to be quiet because she was, of course, bereft and crying during the proceedings. Um, so it really um, goes to what it means for our families to to be recognized both um, in law and as a matter of practice as we bring these cases before the courts to recognize our rights. Great. And so what does this mean for um, families going forward? What kind of stability will they be able to take from this decision and the growing kind of um, parentage decisions that we've been able to secure in the various departments? Sure. Well, this case really is part of the post-Brook B cases, and Brook B was the case decided a couple of years ago that affirmed that indeed non-biological, non-adoptive parents may have rights with respect to their children. They had not previously. And so it really looks at... Um, the statements, actions, and conduct of the parties with respect to a child. And beyond that, I think this case really recognizes and supports the dignity of the family unit and um, the equal dignity of LGBT families, um, just like their heterosexual counterparts. So I think that estoppel is going to be an important and powerful tool in a lot of the cases that are pending before the courts, and this case proves that. Great. So would you say two things? Um, is the legitimacy question, the presumption of parentage, pretty much settled for New York? And, if mm -hmm. I could do mm -hmm. a sub-part, sure. um, which is really more broad in scope, mm -hmm. what's the next frontier that we're kind of facing here as we look at additional barriers and challenges that LGBT families are facing? Sure. Well, I wouldn't say that it's settled in stone. Um, you know, this goes a long way to understanding... Um, you know, the contours and scope of the presumption of parentage. But, you know, the court explicitly said in this case that it was not going to, you know, it was not going to decide 
um, you know, what level of proof was necessary to rebut the presumption, and instead it was going to rely on this doctrine of estoppel. So estoppel sort of comes in as the best supporting actor, you know, um, <laughs> you know as a legal concept, you know, to, to um, buttress uh, the presumption of parentage as, as another concept within uh, family law. Um, so it, I wouldn't say it's entirely settled because... Um, you know, had the facts been different, um, who knows how it might have come out. I do want to say that, broadly speaking, Brook B stood for, I think, two propositions, that both intent and consent um, are important concepts, as are the facts on the ground, what we know as estoppel. And so the job of courts going forward, I think, is going to look at and balance um, sometimes that competing tension between what was the intent of the parties and what actually happened. And sometimes the intent and what happened converge, mm-hmm. and sometimes the intent and what happened diverge. Um, so that's what's going to continue to play out. Um, and we will see if the court ends up coming up with a test which will help litigants, uh, will help families as they plan um, their families, will help litigants as they contemplate litigation, um, and lawyers like us advocating for them. That's great. And you mentioned the tremendous uh, authority that family courts have over the lives of, of the families that they're dealing with and also kind of making up the law as we go in this area, right? So what role do, um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of organizations like Legal that litigate in the space and the Curlin Group who we've identified as, you know, an LGBT competent uh, attorney firm that's able to represent LGBT families. How important is it for LGBT families to have accurate representation of people who understand the unique issues and can explain them to judges and courts? I think it's profoundly important because the reality is that estoppel can apply um, and has applied, um, you know, for years in a heterosexual context. You know, you may have um, a married couple and the child of that married couple um, is not the child of husband, and so estoppel was often used in those paternity cases. But the reality for LGBT couples, and it was the court in the the third department case which really said this, the reality is that um, in nearly all of these cases, assisted reproductive technology um, is what's being used. And so you have the situation where there's always a donor, and so the complexity with respect to um, who has rights, um, you know, needs to be sorted through. And, you know, in our current statutory scheme, you know, we don't have a separate category for donor. We just have biological father. In this case, there was no dispute that the donor was genetically related sure. to the child, um, but was not parent. So, uh, you know, that's another avenue for advocacy on the part of organizations like ours. And our advocacy, I think, is, is strong because we know the reality on the ground and what our clients are facing. Well, that's wonderful. 
again, thank you for all of the work that you do in this area. You've been doing it for a, a long time. And how does it feel to kind of see family law move in the right direction? I mean, there were probably some years where you were practicing in this area where it was very challenging and courts still didn't understand our families and you had to kind of make the case to them of how our families might be different, how they're the same. Um, What has that kind of trajectory felt like for you? Well, you know, I think it's, you know, about the slow march to justice and there's nothing more gratifying than being able to see a family reunited. Um, And so I think that's what um, Joy and Danielle feel. And if any of you who are listening come to our dinner um, in two nights time, um, we're going to be featuring them in a short video. And I think that the sense of solidarity on the part of our community um, is strong and I think will continue to inspire us as we continue to work on behalf of LGBT families. Well, thank you so much, Brett. You certainly inspire us. Um, We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to go to our Of Note segment with Art Leonard. All right, we're back to wrap up with our Of Notes segment for the episode. What do you have for us, Art? Okay, this is a complete surprise. It's a complete surprise. I wouldn't let you tell me. This is a a case from Iowa, uh, the Iowa Court of Appeals. Uh, The name of the case is Estate of Wilson. And what happens is Leslie Wilson dies. And in her will, she leaves everything to Susan Fisher, who had been her longtime same-sex partner, Mm -hmm. and uh, names as sort of the standby fallback. It's called the successor beneficiary, her brother, David. Okay, so... uh, Taking me back to Will's trust in estates law. So so Leslie dies, and (laughs) uh, Susan files for probate and uh, to get property assigned to her name and all this kinds of stuff. And then David comes out of the woodwork, and he says, well, just a minute, I don't think, I don't think Susan should inherit anything here. Because Susan and Leslie broke up years ago. They weren't living together anymore. And their marriage, to the extent there was a marriage, is dissolved. I mean, Susan is claiming they were married Hmm. in Colorado sometime before 1991, which is the date the will was signed. Hmm. Uh, And we all know that there wasn't same-sex marriage in Colorado. I mean, there was a clerk, a local clerk in Colorado, who gave some marriage licenses to people, but uh, those were subsequently declared as invalid by the Colorado courts. So uh, they couldn't have had a legal marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And besides, he said, there's this provision in the Iowa Probate Code that says that if a marriage ends in divorce or is dissolved, a marriage is divorced or dissolved, any bequest to the spouse is automatically revoked as a matter of law. Hmm. So he goes in there, and uh, the thing is that in filing for probate, Leslie, uh, Susan, had represented herself as a surviving spouse because she believed that she and Leslie had a wedding. Yeah. I mean, they probably had some kind of ceremony. They probably exchanged rings or something, whether they had a license or not. Yeah. They regarded themselves as married. 
and they're figuring now, you know, and uh, this was in, uh, uh, she, she passed away in 2014. Uh, so we were in the midst of all this marriage equality stuff, but, uh, but Iowa had had same-sex marriage for almost 10 years ten, by then yeah. because of Lambda's lawsuit, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, uh, so David comes in, and David is not going to contest the idea that they were married because in order for him to use this provision automatically revoking, for there had to be a marriage. Up. There had to be a marriage to be dissolved. <laughs> yeah. So for the purposes of this case, the court said, it is an uncontested fact that these women were married. And what the case revolves around is whether their decision to terminate their relationship without getting a formal divorce, divorce would revoke. And the court said, no, it wouldn't. Uh, he said, because it says uh, uh, a divorce or dissolution, and that was a dissolution, and the court said no. The two terms are synonymous. Yeah. They said, we do not recognize common law divorce in Iowa. If a couple separates without going through the formalities, they're still legally married. Sure. And so the bequest is not automatically revoked. And I thought this was just a fantastic case. And there's this footnote that the court drops. It's nice to see the court. I th- the court got it right here. I, I think so. I think so. But the, there's this footnote that the court drops, and they say, look, we're accepting for purposes of the case that these people were married. We know that there's a real question about whether they were validly married, but neither party is contesting it. And you know what? It wouldn't matter for the outcome of the case because even if they were married, they didn't get a divorce. And as long as there's no divorce decree on file, then there's no automatic revocation of the bequest. I think it's a neat case. This is fascinating. I think it's of note. (laughs) It is of note. Yes. Um, And and, um, what court did you say this was? This is the uh, Iowa Court of Appeals uh, decision on February 7th. Interesting. Estate of Wilson. (laughs) Wilson versus Fisher. (laughs) Wait, wasn't the, who's the guy that wrote the um, Music Man, which is Iowa Stubborn? Meredith Wilson. Meredith Wilson. But he he spelled Wilson with two L's, I think. (laughs) Okay. I think. I'll, I'll have to go back and consult the text. Well, thank you so much. We even managed to inject a little musical theater in there, though I don't think we'll sing this episode. Um, Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.legal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online at iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to like us, give us stars. It helps people find us. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Follow me at E.D. Lesh and Art at A.S. Leonard 1. Thanks again. Back in April. <laughs>